From the shadow of Rockford Tower, behind enemy lines, in the belly of the Delaware Way Beast. Hello, this is Rob. This is the Highlands Bunker Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we have a very, very fun episode uh, tonight because it's an evening episode. Uh, I can tell things are going to be chill, and I can tell it's going to be good. So thank you for joining us. Uh, as always, uh, K. Foster Stromberg is here uh, on the ones and twos on the gain. Uh, we also have our friend, uh, the editor emeritus of the Delaware Call. Jordan Howell. Jordan, thank you for coming. Hooray. And uh, joining us today as our guest, I'm very happy to introduce uh, Mira Devato. She is uh, new with the ACLU, but she's a Delaware native. Um, she's going to be doing um, election and voting uh, campaign projects for the ACLU. Um, she has a background in education in uh, both Eastern and Western Europe and also South America. And I'm excited to speak to Mira. Thank you for coming in. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, that's, it's so great. So the, the first question I have to ask you, and I don't know if you noticed it, but I have a, I have a kit uh, up here. So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big uh, fan of the football from Europe. I don't really follow La Liga, but I, I saw that you, you just moved uh, back here from Madrid. Is that right? That's true. How long did you live in Madrid? Just, it was almost three years. Almost been three years. Year. So did you follow the football in Madrid? Oh, not nearly as closely as okay. I should Okay, all right, all right. Well, I was going to ask you whether um, you supported Real or Atleti. So, I honestly didn't have, I, I didn't have a choice. My students were all Atleti fans. Thank goodness, so, yes. Yes. If I had gone in and said anything differently. Oh, uh, you know what? You're already, see? You're, that's but one, I couldn't tell you the first thing. One check for I you. It doesn't matter. Player. It doesn't matter. Just remember, Real Madrid is, um, is monarchists, fascist I, I bullshit. I get cocky vibes, I think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, look, fascist, monarchist bullshit, and Atleti is the team of the people. I feel that. I have gone to one game. That's it. That's all good like enough. My claim to fame. That's good enough. <laughs> and I sat thank on the wrong side, but that's all right. I had a feeling you were going to say Atleti, and I knew it. <laughs> thank, thank, thank goodness. Um, so we usually start um, this stuff with like just a little bit of background, like okay. where you grew up, um, what was it like, um, perhaps how it influenced you to get into um, the kind of work you did, how it might have influenced you to travel. Sure. Um, but yeah, what was it like? Okay. I, I grew up in Delaware my whole life. So my parents are first-gen immigrants. So my mom was born in Nagpur, which is like the, the dead center point of India. My dad grew up in Bangalore in the south. Um, so, I mean, they came here, what, about three, four years before I was born. And I grew up here, right across from North Star, if you're familiar with the area I am. now. Yeah, so my whole life was spent there. It's like a small town in a small state. So... I mean, Delaware is an entire state of a small town, right? So, Pretty much, yes. Yeah, it was, you know, pu uh, product of Delaware schools from the beginning. I did everything. I did, like, the Catholic start, then the public, then the charter. So I, ha I knew had it all. And, you know, growing up in that area, I mean, it was, I guess, a, a good childhood, but it was really, it's not a diverse area, you know, like, especially... When I was growing up, now we're seeing some changes, but when I was growing up, it was very white, super white. And 
it, I stood out. I mean, I look back at all of my, my middle school pictures and it's just like me and all of my white friends. Um, so it's kind of funny to look back on now all of, I think, the microaggressions that I overlooked and the awkwardness and the discomfort that you know is there, but you're not really sure it's there because you can't put your finger on it. You can't verbalize it. So looking back now, I'm able to put into words a lot of what those experiences felt like and how they influenced where I am now. But, you know, overall learning yeah, process. I, I'm interested in that be because I'm I'm from Wilmington, mm -hmm. but I went to school at, the, I went to St. Mark's for high school when I went to the University of Delaware. But um, because it was like, you know, upper middle class white people, um, that whole like Hokesson, North Star, Lannenberg, that, that whole sort of milieu I'm completely familiar with. Yeah. And like, did, do you feel like there was, I mean, you call them microaggressions, do, do certain things stick out that were just sort of like this ignorance and sort of awkwardness? Yeah. Or is it just, was it just a general thing? No, I mean, there are definitely experiences for sure, you know, like feeling weird about the lunches that your mom packs you and not eating, not bringing them out at the lunch table or, you know, bringing my own money so I would buy it instead of bringing my lunchbox out or... You know, one of my friend's mothers told me that I was really pretty for an Indian girl. And I was like, no, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that's a pat on the back or a slap across the face or why it needed that adjective at the end. But, you know, those experiences in the moment, you really want to smile and nod because it's just not worth it. You got to pick and choose your battles. But there are a lot of things that I look back on now that I wish I had the words to address in the moment because I don't think now I would have been so quiet. But, I mean, when you're kind of like a one-man army. Especially when you're a kid. Yeah. You know, because I, yeah. I, I can remember, and I'm guessing, I'm going to go out on a limb here, say I'm a little bit older. <laughs> uh, but I remember uh, a, a, an Indian guy in our grade and, you know, going to his house or hanging out and just being like, this is weird. I don't understand. Like, why yeah. did I have this food, as you said? Or why? Now, I would never, like, I wouldn't know how to, wouldn't even know how to process it. Mm-hmm. But I definitely understand like, yeah, how that could go, how people would like be weird. It's just a different cultural setup. You know, it was kind of like being raised in a very communal society, but within this external, very individualistic society. So there was constant conflict all the time. You know, I found it very strange when I would go over to friends' houses and like have to say, oh, I'm hungry. Like, is there something to eat? And then you'd come to my house and my mom would just like feed you until I am sorry. Right. Um, and feed you until you can't put like a single more morsel into your mouth. Yeah. So just like those kind of differences, you learn very quickly that you need to ask for what you want or you don't get it, you know? So I don't know. It's just it's yeah. part of the process. Yeah. It's, 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 it's interesting. I, I later in life, I, um, I got interested in cricket. Ooh. And so I, um, uh, became very close friends. I was in a club with, um, with Pakistani and Indian folks, mostly. I mean, there was a few guys from the, the Caribbean and, you know, were the cricket playing mm -hmm. countries. But it was just so interesting to be to be sort of more intimate with them, be friends with them and, like, hang out with them and, and sort of see how, sort of be with them and, and, and get a sense of, like, the way the team, when we went out, say, would be looked at. Or just, like, and not even in a, in a bad way, just in an awkward way way yeah just like i don't feel uncomfortable i just feel like different yeah yeah i mean you know delaware 
has a very segregated history and you still see it today. And it's the story of black versus white in Delaware. So kind of being in that middle ground is really strange, too. I mean, now we're seeing the population grow. We're seeing a huge Asian influx within Delaware as well. But I remember growing up, it was like I had no brown friends and I was also raised Catholic. So not only was I like the only brown girl in my class, but I was the only brown girl in my church every Sunday, too. And so while other people were getting that opportunity to socialize within like the temple social youth groups and celebrate Indian holidays together, like we didn't even do that. So and did your parent were your parents Catholic before they before they yeah. immigrated? So there's a very small portion of India in the south called Goa. And it was yeah, actually- so funny. Uh, we have a friend. I don't mean to say, <laughs> That's I, fine. you know, I mentioned this um, before we turned the microphones on. We started in a friend's basement. His he uh, was born in um, Bhopal, but his wife is from Goa. Interesting. And she has a Portuguese. She was actually she grew up. In uh, in in uh, East Africa, in Kenya, I think, or, or maybe yeah, Kenya. There's a huge Indian population. Yes, but she's from Goa, and uh, she's and she's an Indian Catholic. Yes, that's kind of why I asked exactly. because I I'm familiar with that. Yeah, so that's my my mom's dad is actually Goan, and my dad's family was Catholic in Bangalore originally. So yeah, just growing up within that cultural conflict too, and having that very acute awareness of being the only one in the room constantly. Like within classrooms, within church, within social groups, my parents' social groups too. It was just different. It was a, a very, yeah, like you said, just the awareness that you are always different in the room. Yeah, my mom um, my mom worked at a bunch of different Montessori schools, and one of them in Hokesson was started by a, a, an Indian woman. I think two Indian women, actually. I'm not, I can't remember. Um, but yeah, I remember just people thinking that that was like um, just different. They didn't know what to do with it. Yeah, you know, and it's also just like a very STEM society too. Like you're going to be a doctor. Right. That's what's going to happen. Yeah, I guess you know? it's like a sort of everybody expects you're the ultimate professional. Exactly. Uh, math whiz or something like so that. So then to be within that cultural context and to absolutely despise math and science, <laughs> be horrible at it in every way, you know, not make it into the advanced group in whatever section. It was just like, you know, then you become like that one Indian girl who's like in the humanities track too. So you're like <laughs> a cultural failure as well, you know, like where do you belong? It's so strange, yeah. it's such a strange concept. So how did you, uh, <clears throat> how did you find yourself going overseas? Um, I I uh, saw some of your bio where again I, I knew you, you had lived in Madrid, mm-hmm. um, you had lived in Eastern Europe for a period of time and in South America too. Um, yeah, talk about that. That's very interesting. Sure. So after I graduated high school here, I actually went to university down in D.C. and I just fell in love with the diversity that I found there and just, I mean, it's like such a foodie city too. There's so much food from all over the world. I loved going out to different restaurants every week, trying different cuisines. And I just met so many people from so many different corners of the world that I was like, I, I need to explore it further. I need to meet these people firsthand. It felt so different than the community that I had grown up in, just being exposed to all of that diversity. So I found myself studying abroad classically and had, having that very cliche, study abroad changed my life experience, you know? Um, so immediately after I graduated, I was like, I'm not really ready to sit at a desk. 
um, don't really want a nine to five just yet. So I applied to a few programs abroad, found myself in Croatia, in Bosnia, um, found myself in Ecuador while I was still in university, and then finally settling down in Madrid. And I didn't leave there for almost three years now. And I still miss it. I wake up and miss it every day. Yeah, I can understand. Living in Delaware and then yeah, missing Madrid, I can't imagine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, I say that, but honestly, being back here, I'm I'm kind of re-falling in love with Delaware in a sense. Not because it doesn't have its problems, so to say, but it just it feels nice to have a few things be familiar again. Yeah, are your folks still in the yes, area? Yes, they are. Yeah. Ah, so you this is like a big homecoming. Exactly. For you. They must be. They must be thrilled. They are thrilled, and I immediately return to being 12 years old every time I walk oh, yeah. into my house. Oh, yeah, I guess that would happen. Know? When you leave and then you come back, it's <laughs> yep. like this 10 years or however much time never even happened. Yeah, and suddenly, you know, you live abroad and you're like, you have no idea what my daily life looks like, and now you're home and it's like a text every second. Hey, what are you doing? Where are you at? Like, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's that adjustment process again, but it is lovely to be able to spend that time with family again after so long and being separated from the pandemic too not being able to travel home at all or visit within the last few years too is really tough so you were in spain at that time you were stuck in spain and we had that i don't know if you were following the pandemic in spain specifically i wasn't i was following it in a couple well the 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 wave we got came basically from italy Mm -hmm. so i was watching it in europe and in Asia, but not specifically Spain. Yeah, so Spain and Italy were competing there for a while, and Italy did eventually overtake, but Spain had one of the toughest lockdowns. I think from beginning of March to the end of May, we were not allowed outside, like, for anything. We had grocery times, and you could, like, say you're going to the pharmacy but you had to prove it you like we i didn't leave my house i think for three months except to restock on food and then by june we got walking times quote unquote so we could walk from like 6 to 10 a.m or 5 to 8 p.m something like that was the times and it was just walking nothing was open you weren't going into stores you got to leave and go around you're just taking a walk Yeah. yeah that was that um but it was you know a very intimate experience with myself my roommates ended up leaving i was in my house like quietly for days and i would realize at times by the end of the day i was like i haven't heard a voice today because you don't just speak to yourself you know um or i guess i don't and i should um some people probably started to i say that yeah but i honestly think it's a good thing you need to hear voices there was days i'm like this is so quiet i need to talk to myself yeah i mean i obviously i'm i'm here with with nurse susan um, and it was just like us, but we were, we at least had people like in the neighborhood, mm-hmm. like we'd go to the grocery store and be like, Hey man, okay. Wave to him or we would hang out outside, but you were, you know, you're, you're living abroad. So it was basically just you. Huh? It was just me. Yeah. And it was strange because I always, you know, before that, I think I'm still to this day grappling with the implications of what that does to a person. And we can talk about that politically in terms of solitary and all of that you know because you really get that experience and you realize how inhumane it is it's and, interesting you know it yeah is. let's well let's well, let's talk about that since you brought it up because uh by the time this comes out it'll be out but i talked to uh thomas swan timeless thomas uh, about his book about uh you know about the it's more like a uh, an anthropological study of the way that that culture works inside of a prison but he has a long passage about being in the hole and being in yeah. solitary. 
Now, his take on it was that it it can focus the mind because it's so extreme. It is, yeah. Um, but my challenge to him, and he talked about it a little bit, was that like it's so traumatic. It's tor it's torture, really. It's torture. It fully is torture. And and uh, yeah, and, and did and you kind of felt like that solitary, lonely sort of situation like that. I mean it's not comparable even in the slightest. Oh of course you know? yeah but, but like just the idea of like make, having no connection. Yeah it makes you think because you know I I think I've always been of that mindset. I deeply disagree with that form of abuse honestly but I think people talk about it very casually with no experience about what it does to the human psyche you know and then you have this very mild form of it not even close to what people are experiencing and you realize what kind of implications it has two, three years later. So imagine, imagine this experience on steroids, which is what that is. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's, it's it's quite, I, I think, I think that's one of the reasons why we have so many other sort of social problems or political problems regarding like the the COVID response. Because as much as you want to accept that like, we have to do this. Mm-hmm. Like this is the, this is what we kind of need to do. It really tries. It's very trying, and people like uh, start to lose their mind almost. And and and, and as you do. said, they're they're still at least in a comfortable environment that they uh, that they're that they're familiar with. Yeah. And so, you know, it's it's nothing comparable to being locked up all by yourself like it's that. not and there's no i mean we're not even out of it yet but you know maybe we're out of the worst of the lockdowns and i think people are still grappling with the effects that it has and the way it's changed personalities and how difficult social like i'm nervous sitting with you here now i don't know if i would have been three years ago i considered myself fairly yeah. socially um active you know and i found it easily easy to make friends and these days i'm kind of just like I'd rather just go home and lay in my bed, you know? That's fascinating. It's tough. I, I kind of, uh, I walked the dog this afternoon, and I was like, I was a little bit impatient. I was like, come on, let's go. Like, I, I got stuff to do back at the mm-hmm. house. And literally, we just walk around the block. And the idea of being, like, just walking outside was like a, almost like a chore. Yeah. Almost like you, you become you become uncomfortable with it. Like, you don't want to do as much. You don't go out, you don't uh, see as many people, you don't make as many plans um we've tra- my wife and i have traveled once since we got um since i got the second vaccine shot um but we haven't traveled um not like by plane or anywhere again and so yeah i do feel like even though we seem to be par- maybe partially out of it uh the lockdown period and we could go back for all for all i know it really has like permanently altered sort of like the way people it has, do yeah. stuff, the way people go out to eat or travel or whatever. Yeah, and I was working in schools the whole time uh, through the pandemic as well, mostly virtually during it, yeah. obviously. How but old were the students? I, I've taught as young as two and as old as 18. Okay. So I've really done it all in that sense. But I have, I mean, what I truly felt was the most worrying is that we still don't know what kind of implications that had for three or four year olds that didn't get that key socialization experience, you know, that didn't leave their homes, that didn't get comfortable leaving their parents, so to say. And that's such an important phase. Yeah, I know? feel like there's not enough. I, I, I'm friends with um, a handful of teachers at different levels, high school, middle school, uh, like 
elementary school. And it's about what you said. It's a, it's a, it's, it's, I feel like older kids were a little bit uh, ready to interact on the computer. So even if it's two, three hours a day, they're, they know how to do that. Yeah. But a three, four, five, six yeah, year old kid, like, how, how are you going to get a five year old to look at the computer for two hours? And you shouldn't, alone? right? They right, shouldn't be doing that. And so I think. Um, you know, all all of the teachers I talk to are having a very, very difficult time because the students coming back in are in a in a, in a mess. Yeah. And because and how, how think, could you not be? You would think that would deepen our appreciation for teachers and our education system, right? But <laughs> that's just not the case. And keep in mind, too, that, like, it was really difficult, like, on families. And so, like, a lot of that time locked up, like, you know, family situations became, like, in a lot of households, probably very tense. There was probably... You know, more yelling like these. And then like not only do these kids miss out on that. Um, I have. So my kid was that age during the the pan- pandemic lockdowns. And so now he's in first grade. And so now like those four year olds are in first grade now. And like it's insane. Like it is complete insanity when I hear about his days sometimes. Like like there are like a surprising <laughs> number of fights for first grade Imagine, right? in first grade. And, and like we've talked to his teacher and like you know, everything like that. And it's just. Yeah, it's been a very difficult couple of years yeah, for they everybody. Up, they really yeah. came into their social worlds within that tension. Like, they have it deeply instilled within them now. It's insane. It's tragic, honestly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of tragic. And I feel like, um, well, I've been thinking a lot about, like, education. Because, as you said, you would think that it would sort of focus our efforts about, hey, this is actually really important. See, if we don't do it, see what happens. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a, it's, a, it's a problem. But it's actually the opposite has happened. And I think because the schools uh, become a, a, touch, a touch point for the political debate. I mean, we've seen the classrooms. They have literally become the battlegrounds of yeah. national-level politics these days, yeah. right? Well, and it's funny. I, I hope we come back to this at some point, but I've been working with a group of people to do some sort of project about uh, reactionary, like conservative reactionary politics over time, whether it's the Gilded Age all the way through to today. And one of the things that these reactionaries always try to destroy is public education. They hate public education. Uh, this is the reason there are Catholic schools, for example, in the United States, if you know the history of that. Um, it's one of the ways they said, well, we'll just not have public schools so rich people can just get their vouchers or whatever and you know this is going back to the 19th century and so it's always a flat it's always going to be something that's going to be a wedge issue because they're going to say this is happening to your kids and we can separate we can somehow separate people this way and it's just it's just interesting how it always comes back to that it's one or two one or, yeah it's foundational that's exactly right it really is i mean the quality of your public education system that determines your public health that determines incarceration rates, economic success, employment, all of it. I mean, it all comes down to the quality of public education. Are you giving children the resources and skills they need to succeed and to thrive? Or are you picking and choosing which ones deserve it and which ones don't based on what? Yeah, well, this is something that, uh, that Carl and I have discussed before with some of our friends uh, <clears throat> because we're all kind of there. You know, we all, I mean, Jordan uh, isn't from this area, but 
people in our circles are like, yeah, I mean, we got these opportunities to go to these schools, which made things like very easy. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's completely separate from like what normally people have to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's two tracks. It's so weird. And people don't, uh, and, and yeah. It's so weird how normalized it is too. Like, going into that school how normal it was for it to be 90 percent white and to walk around and to not think that was weird it was yeah just i mean we talk about it all mm-hmm. the time too and i hate it because I, I i do i do like to hear people's stories especially local people to to sort of get an idea of what you know what growing up was like and and on all of that but i feel like sometimes falls into that old delaware story where did you go to high school mm-hmm which is a, just a classist. It's just like I'm gonna find oh, out what where I'm gonna where I'm gonna sort you, where I'm gonna separate you. Now we're adults, you know, but I want to find out where you went to high school so I can slot you into a, a, a class. It's fully just like the astrological signs of Delaware. It's like where'd you go to high school? Like it will tell you about <laughs> yeah. your personality. It will yeah. tell you your strengths and weaknesses, your career path. Yeah, all Joe Jess, sure, the guy. Fully. He's reading your cards. Fully. I will say, moving up here from Georgia, that was. Like immediately stood out as a very unusual thing about Delaware. It's Being like asked holy... where you went to high school. Well, and just the like all like just the the entire economy of non-public schools, like of private schools, mm-hmm. or off of like charter schools and things like that. Highly unusual. Like <laughs> it is completely normalized here. Absolutely, and, uh, and in such a small population too. You know, where once you suck out students from the public schools, you're you're really sucking out the majority of the state there, and you're leaving behind the most vulnerable communities, the most under-resourced. You know, it all starts with like the gilded, like the gilded age type of like wealthy people. Then you got like the gilded age light people, you know, who like, you know who are always like aspiring, like you know they can't have their kids like, you know hanging out in the public schools. But yeah, well, that's what's <laughs> difficult about this because we're because it's small, we're, and we're basically all on top of each other. Yeah, and the state's based on this very rigid financial hierarchy because it's a tax haven it's a world-renowned tax haven and so we have a bunch of very rich wealthy people kind of shoved in here that want to have their own thing and then everybody else gets their thing but the problem is we're all in a tiny place like it's it we're all on top of each other and so like uh you know kids probably go out to ai dupont past Tower Hill and uh, uh, Tattnall, and it's just completely, you know, they're, they, you could walk to the three of them. And so, yeah, it gets very, um, very strange because the, the dynamic is what we described, but we're, we're on top of each other. Yeah, it is. And it's such old, it's such old money, such old Delaware families, too. And being someone who could trace my Delaware family back to my parents, and that's it. That's the start of it. You're immediately excluded from so much of the Delaware way and the Delaware life yeah. because it's all about these histories. How far can you trace yourself back? How many generations went to this high school? You know, how long have you been vacationing down at the beach? It's... Yeah. Did your grandfather work at DuPont? <laughs> yeah, literally. Yeah, which generation of DuPont killed one of your family members? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. No, it, it, it's, it's bad. And, and it's fun. And, and it's very difficult. I mean, people, it, it, it this idea actually cuts across sort of political ideology because everybody is sucked into this. Yeah, for sure. But there's people that I talk to that are, are more persuadable to sort of a leftist idea. And they're like, but I, I did this 30 years ago yeah. and I went to Slaziana. And I'm like, like nobody how? fucking cares. Yeah. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> 
How does that put you at a higher nobody, place? Nobody cares. I don't care. Fuck you. But yeah, but I mean, these are people that we shouldn't really be having these arguments with. But again, it's the it's the class. It's really that the class aspect that people don't yeah. get. They don't have any consciousness of the fact that that's really where the demarcations are. It is. And so it's they don't such get a it. competition of like, how Delawarean are you? And then on top of that, how American are you? Because the longer you trace it back, the more ugly your family's history within Delaware, the more American you are at the end of the day. So what what brought you back uh, here to uh, to the Diamond State yeah. with us? Like, how how did you get back with the. Uh, with the ACLU and, and, and back to your uh, back to your roots. Yeah, sure. So honestly, I've been following the ACLU of Delaware for a long time, pretty much ever since 2014 when I was introduced to their work through the lawsuit against Charter and when I really started to delve into these issues. And I was always interested in education. I was always interested in the education systems within the United States, but also globally as well. And ever since I you know, left and was working within the classrooms and teaching. I was also following the ACLU very closely for the last three years. And as soon as this came up as well, I mean, all through university, I worked with voting initiatives, um, expanding ballot uh, access for students on campus, partnering with USPS or I Am Voter or whatever it is to get absentee workshops, et cetera, on campus um, because college students are just so overlooked within the voting education, you know, it's like assume that by that point in your life, you already know the workings of it. But that's also a very a privileged stance. I mean, most people did not get that civic education before. Is it part that they're also like a sort of transient? Exactly. You know, super transient. A lot of them don't have yeah, per- permanent addresses. Maybe they're registered in their home state. Maybe they're not. Maybe it would be more beneficial or impactful for them to register in the new state that they're currently living in. And they don't know that in terms of, you know, how their vote might be counted right. as well. And a lot of them just don't know where the polling spots are, or maybe they have class during that time. Or if you're a college student and you're thinking about your three meals a day and your paper due the next day, just the polls are not the top priority for you. Right. You know, so it was a very, a very important, um, I guess, goal for me to get that motivation on campus. And you would think that, you know, going to school in D.C. and going to school at GW, this crazy politically active campus, people would be more interested in it. But the the perspective is so big. It's so I want to change the world that they forget to vote in the local elections, you know, and it's like you're thinking too big. Not that that's ever a bad thing. Sure. Think about the world. The world is a great place. You know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. But don't think so big that you forget about the person next to you or your neighbor or the fact that. GW is gentrifying half of DC as we speak, you know? Like, why are those not the battles that you're fighting as well? Why are you thinking so huge that you're missing what's happening right in front of your face? And so doing that voting work and delving into that really, I guess, gave me the foundation that I needed to apply for this job. Um, And when I saw it, I was like, you know what? I have to go home for a little. There's, There's unfinished work there. And this is how I'm going to dig my way back into Delaware society because I never I never dug into the politics of Delaware as a student. It was always just commentary for me. You know, it was normal. It was my home. It's how things run in Delaware. And so this is giving me a different perspective on the state and the players that I never, never delved into before as a student here. Let's talk about something specific and maybe that'll branch off into 
sort of some of your feelings about your work okay. and also some of the stuff that Jordan's working on. So for a long time, Delaware's uh, sort of election laws and, and voting was extremely strict. Um, if you got an absentee ballot, which I had to do one time uh, back 20 years ago, um, you know, you had to say you're going to be out of town and you had to go to mm-hmm. the office and vote at the office and all of that. And um, no early voting. And once COVID was here, it was mail-in. You could mail it in, you could drop it off, but they were going to mail everybody. They're about to completely new thing. And, of course, as reactionaries do with schools, as we talked about before, um, they do this with voting. And so the thing was, oh, 50,000 people got the wrong ballots and dead people voted and all of this stuff. Well, what we come to find out, and Andrew Galvin uh, reported this in uh, the Delaware call, was that it wasn't more than 50,000. They sent about 19,000, I guess, uh, ballots out to bad addresses. Uh, They came back, uh, and there was... a process by which they were able to either verify what happened through other means, DMV and other things, or they were able to cancel out that person off the rolls unless they came back, all of this stuff. So it's all bullshit. But it is that that reactionary sort of response to it is indicative of this is going to be a flashpoint. Like we have to expand... uh, Expand the enterprise of voting. We have to get like education out to people. All of this stuff because it really is sort of a. It's going to be a flashpoint, you know. Um, now, are you are you familiar with that particular uh, change that we did because the, the the COVID change and the expansion of that? Like, what's your what's your thoughts on all of that and and how is that um, how how is that sort of influencing your work? Are you thinking about that kind of stuff? Yeah, I mean, my thoughts are that it was easy, right? It wasn't this big, drawn-out, hugely disproportionate kind of process that they're trying to drag it out or draw it out to be. When it needed to be done, it was done. The work is possible, and it's doable within a short amount of time, within without all of the extra you know, conversation and stalling that goes around it when it came down to a matter of this is this is what needs to be done or we don't have an election this year. It was doable. So why is it suddenly that there are so many barriers and so many obstacles to overcome? Because we know it's not true anymore. The pandemic was very enlightening in the fact that we know that half of these conversations about the millions of obstacles we need to overcome are not true. They're not valid. It's possible if you want it done. It's possible to do it. So that is absolutely influencing my work. It's also making, I think it's making a lot of people think about the validity of this, you know, Democratic Party fight for voting rights. It's, I mean, Delaware is one of the toughest states to vote in as what some like to say blue state. I mean, in my opinion, it's not nearly... It's close to a blue state as we would like to think Yeah, it is, I mean, we, but... this is another conversation. We can get down that road. We talk about it all the time. Right. Kowalko talked about it. I talk about it. It's not a blue state. It's not. It's a corporate state. We have uh, corporate reactionary Democrats. Uh, now, we don't have, like, social reactionaries, but it serves the same purpose. No, I mean, Delaware exists to, to protect big business, but... But at the end of the day, you I mean you have this huge Democratic Party fighting for voting rights in 
all of these red states that they love to color as like the most oppressive, you know, the hardest to vote in. But then you have Delaware up there right with them. You know, we're not we're not far. We're not even far behind. We're we're at the same level. Oh, yeah, level, we're absolutely behind. But you don't see the efforts here. You don't see the Democratic parties pushing for those efforts nearly as vocally or nearly as strongly as we're doing on a national level. So is it really about the fight for voting rights or is it just about fighting for the states that you're scared to lose in? Yeah, I mean, it's all a big game. People like, as we talked about Delaware, they like the tradition. Like, well, I always went out and voted this way 40 years ago. And so any, like people see on television early voting in these big states, Georgia, et cetera, et cetera, California. They've had mail-in, only mail-in in, I think, Washington or Oregon for almost 20 years, I think. But for some reason, it's just like it doesn't penetrate the the political ideas. It, it becomes like a, you know, a, a point of contention when, you know, past that now. Yeah. So that's, it's, as you said, it, we could just do it. We don't have to even, it's we not a problem. It's, it's not a problem. It. Yeah, it's not a problem, it. and it's not partisan. I mean, voting rights are not partisan. They shouldn't be. Well, right? I mean, like, they I mean, they be. are. They are. They are. Yeah. Foundationally, they are. Yeah. The reasons behind it are not because voting rights are partisan, but rather you are just upset about who gets them. Correct. I mean, it, and, it's one of those things sort of like when people unionize and, and you say, like, if, if unions weren't such a big deal, the company wouldn't fight them so hard. Like, if, if voting wasn't if, – if voting rights, like, if it didn't matter – then all of this stuff wouldn't be wouldn't be a wedge issue. Exactly. Like they wouldn't be making up numbers for how many dead people voted in Delaware. They wouldn't be saying that the election was stolen. They wouldn't be saying illegal uh, people undocumented immigrants are voting. They wouldn't be trying to roll back, which they already did, the Voting Rights Act. Like if if it if it didn't matter, they wouldn't be trying to do this. Exactly. So uh, yeah, it does matter uh, because. Even gerrymandering. Now, we don't have to worry about that here too much. Um, even though we just had a redistricting, it wasn't it wasn't that controversial. And I don't I still don't even think it was that controversial, even though I lost I lost my my seat. Now I got Now I'm in a suburb. I went from a city to a suburb. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not complaining. They both sucked anyway, so it doesn't matter. Um, but, yeah, all of that's tied into sort of this. The election system itself is built to be very restrictive. For sure. That's just a fact from the beginning. And uh, like that's what that's like the foundational thing that you're you're basically fighting against. It is. And I mean it's so tied into it it really ties all the way back into our first conversation about charter schools. You know, you have a million different things, requirements, tests, IDs, all of these it's the same thing. It determines who actually shows up at the end of the day and who gets past all of the red tape. You see it manifest very clearly in what the charter school populations look like. And you see it manifest very clearly in terms of who gets access to the polls. It's all the same. It's just how much red tape can you crawl through? And do you have the time and resources to do it? Jordan, what are you working on? What are you, what are you working on uh, election-wise? Can we talk about it? Is this secret, double secret shit? Or can we can we roll it out? Yeah, well... Um... Well, you know, it's election year, so uh, yeah. Basically, I 
in just almost invariably like it's impossible for me not to start you know looking into department of elections stuff you know starting to attend their meetings and poking you know, around you do you like, poking around you poke yeah. around you like to poke around and see what's i do happening. and you know even when i tell myself i'm not going to like i invariably end up doing so and you know but um you know but one of the things i uh, realized poking around is that they're not holding the board of elections meetings right now um and uh is and they haven't had board of elections meetings. Wait, I pulled all this up on my computer. Let's see here. Um, back in February 2021, so we are going over on like over a year now, they have only had four meetings because the board of elections has a rule that if there is one vacancy on the board, then they don't have a quorum and the board of elections can't meet. It is a bipartisan board. So it's composed of Democrats and Republicans. The Delaware Democratic Party has a slate of de Democrats. They want to fill certain seats. Republicans have a slate of Republican candidates. They send those to the governor who will nominate uh, a candidate for the board who will then be confirmed by the General Assembly. And, you know, basically um, it seems as though this process just like went completely haywire over uh, during COVID and um, after um, uh, after the election because of all the like Trump's conspiracy theories and the board has just basically been unable it seems to hold a quorum um, you know members keep resigning sometimes their uh, you know, sometimes their um, you know terms expire but for whatever reason. Either Governor Carney, uh, you know, isn't uh, either either Dell Dems aren't giving the governor uh, a slate of candidates with the proper amount of time or the governor isn't appointing them, uh, you know, with enough time to avoid a vacancy or the General Assembly isn't approving them with enough time to avoid a vacancy. So they basically have just been like hamstrung by vacancies for over a year now, both Democrat and Republican. But the most recent vacancy um, so sometimes when I go poking around, like, I am such a nerd, people. Like, I'll actually go and read minutes from the old Board of Elections meetings. And, like, the reason they're not meeting now and haven't had a meeting for three months, I'm pretty sure. Like, 90% sure. Allegedly sure. <laughs> yeah, that... I mean, sure enough for this broadcast. <laughs> yeah, sure enough for this broadcast. I mean, who else is reading um, the fucking minutes anyway? The guy's yeah. reading the minutes. Give him a break. <laughs> no one else is um, doing that. One Republican member of the committee of the Board of Elections, rather, um, apparently wanted. Um, wait, not John Petty John. What's Brian Petty John. Brian Petty yes, John. Yes, this is a very good story. Yes, I, I, I can fill in what. If, oh boy! If you don't know the whole thing, it's a very. You know fun. I don't. I don't know the one. whole this thing. Good. And his name's not John Petty John, although that'd be awesome. <laughs> he should change his name to John Petty John. <laughs> but, so Brian is his uh, name. Okay. But, but this guy's in a represent. This guy's in the, in the legislature. He's right? down in Georgetown. He's a state senator. Okay. And so, what was what has been part of the Trump like you know, and like you know kind of right wing mission after um, you know January sixth and the twenty twenty election has been you know taking over or like trying to take over boards of elections or just any type of election bureaucracy in states and in the state of Delaware. Okay, so we have our board of elections which is goes through this complicated, you know, approval process, you know, submitted by the um, uh, by the political parties, appointed by the governor, approved by the General Assembly. But then on top of all this, each county has a director and a deputy director 
of elections who then are who also need to be bipartisan. So who's ever in charge gets a director. So in each county, the directors are Democrats now and all the um, deputy directors are Republicans. And this is also apparently chosen. Um, this is, I don't getting really complicated. This whole fucking conflict by the like just by the democratic member the democratic members of the board of elections choose the director of each county without any input from the republicans vice versa with the republicans they and have so they're to... not nominated through the governor system yeah. the, the 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 state board is picking the county heads yeah state board is picking the county heads and apparently like as part of this trumpian mission john petty john no brian petty john, <laughs> john petty john <laughs> Oh man! Now that I said it once and I'm high, I'm, uh, like, I'm so going to fuck it up the rest of the night. <laughs> Brian Pettyjohn wanted that. that deputy director position, like he's on the state senate, but he wanted to like have this job on the board of elections. And this one member of the board of elections, um, Barbara Sikora, um, just like would not budge on it. Was holding up business. Um, would not like this vacancy went on for months and months and months, and she wasn't budging. And then in February, she resigned, and now they can't have fucking meetings again because now— No quorum. They can, no quorum. Yeah, clusterfuck. And, and the Republicans can't figure out who they want to um, appoint. Like, to so is Petty John—is <laughs> he still pushing for this? What's what's so, the—give me more yeah, detail yeah, on the Petty John. So Brian Petty John, best known for when he accidentally tried to bring a gun onto a plane and got caught. And oh, yeah, for that. He, brought a loaded, he brought a loaded 9 millimeter yes. to Salisbury Airport. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah that's yeah, what he's, he's a fucking idiot. For before this, yeah, that but, guy's a so moron. he yeah. was going around allegedly. So I've not heard he did not tell me this, but people that he talked to were telling everybody. He was telling everybody, he's like, "Oh yeah, I'm retiring. I'm getting this Department of Elections gig. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm not running again. I, you know, I got the thing locked up." Um, and so if you go back into the um, campaign committee filings, you'll see that there is a Ruth Briggs King for State Senate Committee that was created a few months ago uh, because she presumably heard that he was not going to run again. She's in the state house. She was going to go for the state Senate. This is the only elected Republican woman uh, in the state, I believe. Uh, definitely in the state legislature. Um, so everybody just sort of assumed he was going to get this position, but it was this one Republican on the board of elections that was like, no, this guy's too crazy for us. Like, I'm not going to vote for this guy. And he'd, spent, he'd lobbied for months, yeah, to try to get this position. But last thing I heard, he kind of had to go back with his tail between his legs to be like, yeah, I'm not getting this job. I'm going to, I don't know, I'm going to run for re-election. So it's unclear if he's going to be primaried now by Ruth Briggs King, <laughs> who, you know, put all this effort in. Like, she's not my favorite Republican. She's not my least favorite Republican. She's a very nice person from what I've heard. Um, this is awesome. And so now there's this awkward situation where this guy thought he was going to get this job. He had it all locked up. He was going to get this nice, cushy state salary. And then, nope. Okay, so... What was the name of the woman, the Republican woman, who, before she resigned from the board, was was blocking this appointment? Yeah. Oh, well, what see, was her name? Now, do her we name, know Barbara her? Barbara Sakura? But I think she was the one. Like, I she I, I thought she was the one who was. I thought the rest of the Republicans were trying to nominate somebody else, and she was trying to nominate Petty John. But either way, there's some sort of contention there. Were some, there were some Republicans blocking him. It because... doesn't and matter. It ended up, and it ended up with um, you know this person's resignation, which now is keeping the board from meeting again. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the bottom line is, and 
I have to say this. John Petty John was cucked. He was, <laughs> he was cucked. He got, he got, to, he's a loser. He, he was saying he was going to get it, and then he didn't get it. He's a loser, folks. I just like how you kept saying John Petty John. <laughs> that was great. Oh, man. <laughs> so, Mira, yes. what, uh, what projects are you working on, and how can people get involved with them? Sure. Because before we get off on these... Uh, Tangents. No, I want to make sure. I'm, I want to make sure that we we talk about like specifically because I was I was very interested earlier before we turned the mics on. You were talking about uh, talking to Network Delaware, um, trying to do some projects sort of in coordination. So I'm very interested in um, like specifically the work that you're doing and how people can get involved in it. Yeah, for sure. Well, we have not actually launched our campaign yet, so that will come soon. But I mean, immediately before I talk about what's to come, I do want to plug that school board elections are May 10th. So I think that is something that is incredible. I mean, we've, we've like spent half before. of this conversation yeah. yeah, talking about Delaware public schools. Yes. And it is, in fact, run by Delaware school boards, which have some of the lowest voting turnout rates. I mean, school boards across the country have some of the lowest vo- voting turnout rates of any election, right, which makes every single vote so impactful because there's such a low voter turnout. And it doesn't give us those kinds of protections against extreme candidates and fringe groups taking over these elections. And we were saying quite earlier, uh, a bit earlier, that, I mean, schools are becoming battlegrounds, right? We're seeing COVID measures. We're seeing textbook choices, critical race theory, all of these um, battle or national level politics issues play out within schools. Oh, the moral so, panic is going to bring out the bring out the crazies for sure. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Right. Yeah. And they win. Yeah. They win these elections because nobody shows up for them. So before I even talk about what's to come, everyone needs to vote in school board elections. Yeah. I mean, the good the good news around here for some reason is that the last cycle had a bunch of like patriots for Delaware, like lunatics. I think they all lost. I think every one, single one lost except for the one that was running unopposed. Yeah, so just opposed. You just have to stand up uh, in the face of lunacy, and you'll probably win. But uh, as we actually got to vote because that was as Mira said. I mean, because in twenty twenty one, it people, was that the turnout is so so the low. highest turnout in each of those races for every single one because people on our side mobilized. Mm-hmm. Um, our our side being a very broad term, but like people who are not lunatics down for that, and so. Yeah, and yeah, seconding what Mira is saying, because this year there's not the same energy around it no. on the left, but there's still the same threats on the right. So, If not more, yeah. Um, so, yeah, people definitely need to get out to vote. Um, we'll link the uh, election site where people can find their polling places. It's May 10th. Uh, polls are open all day. You can get absentee beforehand if you need. So it's all there. Yeah, and, and again, as someone who is um, sort of a cynical sort of like – stoner disconnected aloof whatever whatever i am like just get out and vote i vote in the school board elections just because we can't this is another wedge issue as we talked about before and we just can't have lunatics uh have a platform one of the most important platforms we have as a community literally and at the school board mm-hmm. we can't have it we can't have people talking about uh you know creationism or critical race theory, or that uh, you know your your lesbian third grade uh, teacher is a groomer or something. We can't have it's just nonsense. No. We can't have it. 
And so we, we you you have to start taking responsibility for your community. Now again, this is why it's so important that these a lot of people like don't have to because they can send their kids to other places and they don't worry about it. Yep. Um, but um, but yeah, try to start taking responsibility for your community. Uh, otherwise, um, your community is going to be run by maniacs and dum dums. No. And we can't have it. I mean, schools are quite literally like the. I think people <laughs> overlook it. They are the hearts of our community. I yeah. Mean, children are literally the future of Delaware, <laughs> of this country, of <laughs> Just, everything. Yeah. You know. How are we not more concerned about what they're being taught within? The public school system and how are we not more concerned about this the quality this i mean school boards make or break the quality of public education systems yeah. they manage budgets of millions of dollars it's not a casual role to play no and but, you know what sometimes the left loses interest in this but you know what the right has always been mobilized around school boards the like the you know the john burt society has been like you know getting their members to like run for school board elections for decades mm-hmm. you know and that is just like you know entire infrastructure organized just around school board takeovers. Yep. I mean, like, it starts local, right? Yeah. Those takeovers begin on very small level elections, but they have huge impacts for the community. Yeah, I mean, we talk about it here all the time. We talk about, like, just history, like the interesting stories of history and the context of history and how how these things might have happened. And a lot of people don't know it because school boards sort of approve textbooks for 40 years that tell a certain kind of history and so people know about thomas jefferson but they don't know about thomas Paine, mm-hmm. for example you know they know about uh you know teddy roosevelt but they don't know about eugene debs and so yeah i mean it's all it's all kind of part of that uh sort of community foundational stuff I mean, think about how many students go through their K-12 education and have never seen themselves represented in their curriculum, have never seen anyone in their textbooks talked about who looks like them. That has very deep implications for how you feel your belonging or how important your belonging is to society as well. It starts from such a young age. But anyway, that's my school board plug. Um, Thank you. Um, Carl, thanks you. Going Going past that to look at what the voter campaign is actually focused on, I think my my biggest goal for the campaign is kind of to reshape how we think of voter education. I mean, like I said, I, I did all of the different school systems. I did the Catholic school system in Delaware. I did the public school system. I did the charter school system. And at the end of the day, what I got out of my my voter education there was this kind of idea of shame that if you don't vote... You have no right to talk about anything. The only the only way you're allowed to have an opinion about government or your communities is if you participated in the election. And if you didn't, then be silent because you didn't take advantage of the opportunity when it was presented to you. And I really want to reshape that with this campaign. I want to talk about the histories of disenfranchisement. I want to talk about voting as the choice to exercise your right to vote. It is not mandatory that you vote. And I mean, I'm saying this as the voter campaign manager. My job is quite literally to get you to vote. And I'm saying that we need to reshape our idea of it. We need to stop shaming communities who choose not to exercise that right and instead ask questions about why you're not voting. Where does this distrust stem from? I mean, it's quite obvious when you take a look. It's a very easy road, a path to follow why communities have this distrust, why you feel like this vote means nothing. And it's a valid 
concern. It's a very valid feeling, a very valid emotion. The histories are real and they're still present today. I mean, this entire hour, we're still talking about how they are still present within Delaware and yeah. on a national level scale as well. That's my that's my goal with how this education is going to shape, you know, within the next year. And hopefully that changes the way people think about voting. And hopefully it, it makes people ask more questions about why certain communities don't feel like a vote inc even includes them in the process as well, or what kinds of resources and accessibility measures need to be included to help hard to reach communities access the ballot in the first place. I mean, hopefully we can talk about same day registration, vote by mail, no excuse absentees, all of these issues that will expand access to the ballot. I mean, and hopefully it extends beyond that as well, you know, into those histories of disenfranchisement, into those questions about why not instead of shame you know? exactly i i mean i agree with everything you just said um i've told the story before <clears throat> but i went out canvassing i've been canvassing one time i went out and canvassed for jess green and uh, i i kind of did it as like i wanted to see what it was like put myself out of my comfort zone whatever mm -hmm. and so we went out to did it did it and i talked to tons of people i, I actually Felt good about it. I, I don't think I changed anybody's mind, but um, I remember talking to this one guy who was sitting uh, on a chair on the street there outside of a shop, and he was smoking a joint, and I was like, I got to talk to this cat, you know, it's my, it's my stuff. <laughs> and I was like, hey, man, how you doing? He's like, hey, brother. I said, you know, we're just uh, talking about this election coming up. You know, we're trying to actually, you know, do something. He was like, I feel that. He's like, I don't get involved in it, though. And I'm like, oh, it's nothing. He's like, never vote. It's not my, there's nothing for me. Mm -hmm. And I looked at him and I was like, yeah, that's right. Like I had no, there was nothing I could say. Because his his not voting wasn't out of uh, like laziness, or mm -hmm. apathy. It was like, there's nothing for yeah. me. So it's, an, it's almost like an active, it's an act of defiance. I mean, like I'm not getting involved in it. Yep. And that's exactly what you're saying. We have to sort of like address that dynamic. Yeah, I had a friend, you know, when I got this position and she was like, congratulations, I'm happy for you, but you cannot convince me to vote in the next election. And I was like, you know what? My job isn't to convince you. It's to make sure that it's accessible to you. It's to make sure that you have the resources and the information to do it. And it's to listen to why you're not doing it. It's not to convince people with traumatic histories and present day experiences that they're wrong you know it's not to shame you it's not to shame communities it's not to guilt you either it's simply to listen and to take action to make those resources and informations and stories accessible and told that's it yeah i mean ultimately i i would hope that there is a way to get involved and if you don't like your options in the electoral realm you could there's other stuff you can do for sure that's the other thing i was saying i'm not going to take the spotlight too much off of voting because i know there's <laughs> election stuff but you know um carl's a great example the working families party uh through that organizing and activism and training and solidarity candidates sort of bubble up from the mm -hmm. community 
And when candidates bubble up from the community, from the grassroots, from organizing, it's different than a regular election. And you can say, yes, not only do I understand why you don't vote, why you wouldn't vote, under those circumstances, maybe I wouldn't vote. Mm-hmm. But we actually have something different you can do and get involved with. And then if you're comfortable with that, if you think that's a thing, you can then get involved. Absolutely. And then, then your involvement becomes something completely completely different than just turning out to push a button. Absolutely. You know, and it doesn't just all have to be canvassing and registration dives. We can talk about voter participation in terms of election protection, too. We can talk about you showing up to make sure there's not intimidation or, you know, other barriers that are preventing people who are already in line to vote from voting. You can participate without casting a ballot. I mean, you can participate in so many different ways within the election. So you're absolutely right. That is something we should spotlight. Mira, thank you for coming. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Nah, it was it was it was great. I was so excited um, when I saw that the ACLU uh, got another person to join the join the team. I can't believe it, honestly. I I, was, I told you in the beginning, I'm dealing with a lot of imposter syndrome at the moment. <laughs> I I need to. I I can't believe I'm here. Honestly, I can't believe I'm part of this. Uh, yeah, I mean, all all I can tell you about that is that um, for like 25 years, I went into a bank to like play with spreadsheets and do like phone calls and then I started like trying to use trying to create a media platform that would help left-wing political organizing so yeah I mean I don't know what I'm doing you just do it you just do you just do it I mean I don't know what these guys think they're doing the same thing Carl and Jordan are doing the same thing you just you just do it and then you're doing it like there's no you can't be an imposter because if you're do- <laughs> because if you're doing it, like you're doing, I'm looking at you. You're there. You're talking into the thing about left wing organizing and 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 voting and getting people engaged in the political process, and and advocacy. And so there's no imp- you're doing it already. Hopefully you're doing Hopefully you're doing it. it. You just did it. We did it. Ninety minutes. We already did it. You're doing yeah. it. I had so on my first campaign I worked on for Eugene Young. I had imposter syndrome the entire time being on that comms team. And look, man, we were within two almost two hundred votes of, uh, you know, having a different future, a city where this, you know, uh, you know, city wasn't run by Przicki. Yeah, but, I mean, maybe we'd have we'd, so close. We'd, maybe we'd yeah. have um, we'd have maybe we'd have less uh, homeless people. Uh, the cops wouldn't uh, murder people, and maybe we wouldn't have uh, uh, duck pin bowling. I don't know. I would trade those two. Well, let's not throw the baby out with the (laughs) bathwater. Yeah, I mean, why why don't we just ask for it all? That's a fair point. Well, uh, everyone, we've reached the end uh, of another great episode. I mean, you could you you could uh, patronize it. You know, you could become a patron. You could go to Patreon.com/slash/TheHoundsBunker. That would be that would be great. (laughs) Five bucks, ten bucks. Um, definitely the most important thing you can do is click the links that Carl's going to put into the show notes so you understand the work that uh, Mira is doing with the ACLU, how you can get involved, how you can follow it, all of that. And also how you can get out and vote in your school board elections to make sure that we don't have lunatics running the school board. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're, you're very welcome. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. I mean, uh, here, there, and everywhere, left is best.